millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, May 22nd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, black Mississippians are one of the most likely racial groups in the country to be audited. Then a recent poll finds 80% of Mississippi residents want legislation that would reduce the cost of medicines. Plus, emergency responders from across the state are coordinating plans for future disasters. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The IRS has recently admitted black taxpayers have been audited at rates three to five times higher than other racial groups. A 2019 report from ProPublica revealed Humphreys County, a predominantly black region in the Delta, is the most heavily audited county in America. Our Will Stribling speaks with Bill Wickelson, director of Mississippi's only low-income taxpayer clinic. He says there's a simple reason for these problematic audits. A lot of what we do here at the tax clinic is assisting low-income taxpayers through that audit process. Usually, it'll start with a very generic and vague notice or letter that comes from the IRS that basically just asks uh, the taxpayer to provide further supporting documentation for, you know, whatever issue on their tax return that, that the IRS has flagged. A good bit of those, probably most of those, are dependent issues. So they're wanting the taxpayers to uh, offer up proof and evidence that they are eligible to claim the dependents that they claimed on their tax return. So it might be their own children, it might be their grandchildren, it might be nieces, nephews, you know, stepchildren, brothers, sisters, whatever. That's the root of a lot of the issues. Other times it might be uh, issues related to income where the IRS is you know, questioning whether the person earned you know, more or less income than they claimed on their tax return. The, that, that first notice, in my experience, uh, I find it to be pretty useless because, like I mentioned earlier, it's just very vague and generic. Like every person that gets one gets the exact same one. It, it lays out you know, kind of like what they want the person to provide, 
but there's no specificity to it. So it just kind of gives you this long list of things to provide, but it doesn't give you any insight into what the specific problem is that they have with your tax return that you know they want you to resolve. So uh, usually we catch the cases a little further down the road, but after that initial notice, if the person doesn't really respond to it, uh, they'll get a second notice that will provide some more detail. After that letter, uh, they get what's called a notice of deficiency. Uh, it'll tell you that you have 90 days to file a petition in tax court. Most of our cases, that's where we end up working them. The, the tax court process, uh, it's very long. It, these things can take years to work through. A lot of times their refunds are going to be frozen in those situations. And even if they ultimately win the audit, they might not see that refund money for a year, two years, you know, maybe even three years later. That's a burden on anyone, but especially, you know, a, a low-income family where time is money and they're having to dedicate all this time to fighting this case. And also maybe finances, personal finances are planned around getting this refund that they then are not going to get for some significant amount of time. Can you talk that, like in your clients, like how disruptive this process can be to their day-to-day -day lives? You know, a lot of these refunds are sizable. And so they can really make a big difference one way or the other for, for low-income people especially. And you can just imagine kind of the impact, you know, that that could have uh, for people who are, are struggling and, you know, maybe they're behind on their rent or, you know, their car is broken down and, you know, they, they need to get it fixed. And a lot of times, you know, they file that tax return, uh, they're expecting that money and that money is more or less already spent. And then suddenly, you know, they think it's going to be coming within a week it doesn't come, then they get a notice that they're being audited, and, and it's this long, uh, drawn-out process. First thing I try to tell people and try to kind of get through to them when they contact us and they're kind of into the process um, is to kind of just forget about the money. You know, just don't even, you know, like don't don't get your hopes up. Like, I think we'll probably get that money for you at some point, but it's going to be so far down the line that you're better off just kind of forgetting about it and then when you do get it, you know, it'll kind of be a, a nice bonus for you. Like like people are kind of, you know, living month to month, uh, living week to week. It's very tough. So on Monday, the IRS finally admitted that, that black Americans are far more likely to be audited than others. And that's, you know, a complete reversal from their position a few years ago when they were, you know, presented with data that showed, you know, that, that Humphreys County, Mississippi is where you're most likely to be audited in the entire United States. And they said that they were completely neutral. Now they're having this about face and saying that they're going to fully interrogate that audit decision-making process to make it more equitable. What do you think about that? And do you, do you believe them? Yeah, I mean, I, I would be very much in the camp of I'll believe it when I see it. There's just, you know, like, I guess I've been doing this for, for several years, uh, and I've just never really seen uh, much progress as far as the IRS, you know, actually doing these things that they, they say they're going to do. You know, I mean, they are saying the right things, so I'll give them some credit for that, you know, because like you say, they've kind of they've at least come around on that side of it. Um, but I think actually implementing any kind of real changes is, you know, just much easier said than done, you know, when you're talking about just a colossal government entity like the IRS. You know, it just seems like any kind of 
change that they might make is going to be extremely uh, slow and, and, you know, I don't know how impactful it would actually be. But I guess if they're saying the right things, I think it does uh, seem like they're under some scrutiny at the moment. And, and they kind of have been, I guess, for the last couple of years. But it feels like now if we're kind of on the other side of that and now maybe the you know the heat is getting turned up on them a little bit more. They've gotten, you know, this extra funding from last year. So so I think at least if you want to be optimistic about it, like it feels like they're there's more scrutiny, like there's more eyes on what they're doing, maybe. And people I think are gonna be paying attention to, okay, you you know, you've got all this money uh, you know, you said you're going to do these things. Now, you know, are you actually going to do it? That's Ben Wilkerson, director of North Mississippi Rural Legal Services, the state's only income tax payer clinic for low income folks. Coming up, a poll found Mississippians by and large want the legislature to enact laws that reduce the cost of medicines. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. In a recent survey, nearly 80 percent of Mississippians said they want to see legislative changes to reduce the cost of prescriptions. The study was conducted by Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. It focused on the ways prices of drugs can be driven up because of pharmacy benefit managers. Our Kobe Vance talks with Stammy Williams, Director of State Public Affairs. She says the benefit managers serve as the middlemen between pharmacies and insurance companies. We connected with Morning Consult to conduct a 50-state poll of Americans on behalf of pharma to get to the root of the affordability challenges and to learn more about what real people are believing policymakers should do to tackle these problems. What did y'all find? uh, What were some of your findings in this report? Some of these findings, it's it's overwhelming. Uh, 86% of American adults across all 50 states agree that policymakers should prioritize lowering their out-of-pocket health care costs. We're all tired of it. Health care, it costs a lot. A lot of things cost a lot. And we want to make sure uh, as the pharmaceutical manufacturers, that we are doing what we can to keep those costs low. Have y'all looked into any policies that have been addressed over the past few years um, when it comes to trying to lower costs for consumers? Yeah, absolutely. We have legislation going um, in all 50 states. It's called Share the Savings. And what that would do is hold these PBMs accountable, and by PBM, I mean pharmacy benefit manager. And they're separate from the pharmaceutical industry uh, that I'm working for with the manufacturers. Uh, it's These pharmacy benefit managers stand in the way. They're in the middle. They absorb the rebates and the discounts that the pharmaceutical manufacturers give, and they're not passing them on to patients, and it's, it's, it's costing us. This year, Mississippi passed a bill that would have expanded uh, 
protections for consumers when it comes to PBMs. It would have tightened restrictions for PB, uh, pharmacy benefit managers trying uh, that there was restrictions that could lead to increased cost. But Mississippi's governor vetoed that. I wanted to get your thoughts on that kind of trend across the United States and in Mississippi specifically about how there is the ongoing battle between PBMs and yeah. the agencies that regulate them. Yeah, that that just means that there's more work to be done. It means that we have to keep talking. We have to keep understanding and educating people um, and meet them where they are. And that's okay. You know, every step is a step in the right direction. And um, we, we are happy to work with the governor. We're happy to work um, with anyone that might have any doubts and, 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 and share information because, and, you know, there's not something, you know, hidden for us in the shared savings and in, in, in these bills that um, we're sharing with the governor. And look, our, you know, Arkansas, a lot of places, Indiana even, uh, West Virginia, we've passed the shared savings legislation and we're going to let that speak for itself and then we're going to let it uh, show in other states too. And we're hopeful that um, we can continue telling people uh, what's what's good. What um, what happens in a PBM that causes the cost to go up uh, and how can policy change that? Yeah, so what's happening right now is that uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers have discounts and rebates uh, for for the medication. And it's important to understand that, obviously, for research and development, it, it's going to cost money. And there are a lot of people that are working in the industry, manufacturers on the line, researchers, people, real people that care about um, making sure that people are taken care of. And what's happening is, we are we are we have these discounts, we have these rebates, and we are sharing them. And then now there's this intermediary kind of this PBM. They are taking those discounts and those rebates, and they are getting the money from it in the middle, and they are not giving them the patients. What, did y'all have any specific findings from Mississippi? Yeah, we had we had a lot of really great uh, findings from Mississippi, which was. Um, Understanding that across the board, uh, lower prescription drug costs are requiring health insurance and P- PBMs to pass along rebates and discounts to patients, and over 80% of people support that. It's really important, that, and we're finding a lot of that in each state, actually. Um, and Americans are realizing that insurance insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers don't pay full price for medicines, and they're and we're all asking. I'm asking. So why are we paying the full cost that you need when there are savings in the middle? What could be done in state legislature or nationally to be able to reduce the cost of seeking medication for uh, for patients? Yeah, and there's a lot of solutions, and I encourage everyone to go to phrma.org backslash states. Um, there's There's... We talk a little bit about the cause, and then we offer a lot of solutions. And Share the Savings is one of them. Um, another one is an initiative called, called Making Coupons Count, and that makes make sure that we are doing everything that we can to share savings with patients. What are some things that stood out to you in this study about the significance of Mississippians saying they want to see change in this field? I think that a lot of people just don't trust middlemen. They don't want the 
Prescription Drug Affordability Boards, which is also called a PDAB. I think a lot of Mississippians will probably hear about that at a certain point. So they don't trust the PDABs. They don't trust these intermediaries. And I think that a lot of people just want the middlemen and anyone else to kind of get out of their way and make sure that they're receiving the savings they deserve. I really uh, encourage people to continue familiarizing themselves with the PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers, and understanding what their role is. Uh, contacting their legislature is important. And honestly, continuing to learn more, um, reaching out, and visit pharma.org, phrma.org slash states, and learn about specifically what's going on in Mississippi. You can learn a lot from the website, uh, the impact of the pharmaceutical industry on the state, all the way down to the kind of savings that you can see with good legislation. Stamey Williams is Director of State Public Affairs with Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers Association. Coming up, first responders are meeting to plan and coordinate disaster plans. Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Humor, stories, news, music. Our weekend lineup has it all. Tune in to enjoy the relaxed sound of the weekends on MPB Think Radio. Classical, jazz, indie, blues, folk, bluegrass, whatever you call your music. Find it on MPB Music Radio on mpbonline.org or the MPB Public Media app or on an HD radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Emergency responders from across Mississippi gathered on the coast to discuss disaster preparedness. The event branches across multiple fields, such as medicine, disaster response, the National Guard, and local law enforcement. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Stephen McCraney, Executive Director of Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, He says this is the first conference they've had since the onset of the pandemic. Well, this is the opportunity where we put on classes, uh, we knock the dust off the manuals and and actually look at what happened last year. We take a quick snapshot back and looking back at uh, Hurricane Ida, over $20 million worth of damage in the state. So uh, from the EM directors to the emergency responders, search and rescue Uh, the Mississippi National Guard, uh, all those partners that actually are going to be involved in a hurricane response, we're here and we're able to talk one-on-one. We're able to have uh, little breakout sessions on on how we're going to handle logistics, food, water, um, talking to our private partners, CVS, Walgreens for prescriptions and things of that nature. So it's just a great opportunity to get all the responders from the state when the the lower uh, part of the state's normally impacted. We even we bring people in from the northern part of the state to help and do search and rescue. So it's a great, great conference uh, to get those partners in preparedness uh, headed in the right direction. Were there any lessons that you all learned at Mima from Ida and the response to it or maybe the storm itself that you plan on implementing going forward? Yeah, was, uh, Ida was one of those storms that uh, when we first looked at it as it came through, we didn't necessarily see the damage up front. But as it went up through the state, uh, it got some of our other counties uh, in the in the public se- sector, whether it be roads, uh, bridges, and those things. So now taking a look at those bridges and those roads and those governmental buildings uh, that, that uh, work for the citizens, uh, to take a look at those ahead of time, uh, we can always rebuild them, and we do, with mitigation money to make them harder. 
and the coast is, done, is a great example of that after Katrina. Uh, I remember responding to that storm, uh, being down here for months and months uh, on end, and we're still working that storm to this day. So you're looking at a storm that hit uh, many, many years ago in Katrina. We're still doing some infrastructure, some uh, water projects, sewage projects, and whatnot in uh, Biloxi right now, and uh, we look forward to finishing those up. But it, rebuilding a city, uh, rebuilding a coastline, rebuilding everything that goes into it uh, is something that we constantly assess. We're constantly looking at it. How are you all preparing for these changes in storm surge? Uh, I guess in the public sector and in, in your department as well as private. Is there any conversation going on with that? Absolutely. Just earlier this morning, we had the National Weather Service out of Slidell came in and gave us a brief. And we, we actually bring in those local forecasters to our district meetings on the county level uh, as we have those every quarter uh, throughout the state. We're meeting with all nine districts. Uh, so we do look at the surge. Even two years ago, look at all the construction that's taking place. Look, look how a city rebuilds. Look at how water runoff is going to affect you. So if at high tide and surge... And then you have the water effect of the rain. That's the most deaths occur because of water, whether it's flooding or whether it's the surge. And then afterwards, uh, an equal amount of deaths occur in storms because of uh, the hazards of cleaning things up and, and all the construction that goes on. Uh, we, we had a hospital just in Rolling Fork when the tornadoes came through a few months ago that was taken out of service. And the most important thing was to get that hospital back up because we probably had three to 400 responders on the ground in that impacted area working in dangerous conditions, and we need medical support there. So the same thing we look at uh, here, what we've got, the surge maps have gotten better, but it's also the locals here in Hancock County on the coast. We know uh, in certain areas, if they say it's a three-foot surge, it's really a five because of the change of the landscape the buildings, the everything else, and the water runoff, and the speed at which it meets each other. Was it low tide or high tide? You've got, so the, getting that local forecast really dialed in for those citizens and making it mean something to them, is, mm -hmm. as I think we're doing a great job with and partnering with the National Weather Service. They're, they're the locals. Do you have any updates on recovery process in Rolling Fork in the larger Delta area? It's been just about two months since yep. those tornadoes hit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, our first um, uh, response uh, starting the night thereof, uh, uh, the emergency managers uh, came to help other emergency managers that were that were hurt. And within about 30 minutes, uh, we were actually uh, triaging patients uh, in the in the parking lot of a John Deere dealership. So it goes from that kind of response to where we are today. We've done our, our relatively, in all of the areas, our first pickup of debris uh, has been accomplished. Uh, about uh, 1.2 million cubic yards of debris uh, moved, and we have to do some of we burned uh, within those counties. Some of them you got to separate it out because you're going to have refrigerators, uh, dryers. You're going to have a lot of construction materials versus the vegetative materials that uh, the trees and everything that were done. So. We've got some uh, great work that's been done there. As a matter of fact, today, Samaritan's Purse will be uh, blessing uh, some of the trailers that they're going to be installing. They have been, uh, their number is up to 35 now that they're going to be replacing for folks that were in mobile homes uh, to be able to give them an opportunity to have another home just like they did, come in and install that on the lot. So uh, Franklin Graham is actually uh, uh, blessing the, the first, first initial ones today. We've got about a 
176 uh, folks, the families that are in non-congregate sheltering. We've been putting them up in hotels with meals and others to, to take care of them in a time where there's no roof over their head. Uh, we've, we've gotten about 135 uh, families that are qualified for uh, MEMA uh, and FEMA uh, assistance for housing. And uh, our goal is June the 1st to start the installing there. But when you look at a property, though, you, you, does it have electrical? Does it have uh, sewage? Does it have uh, water? Do you have everything that you need? And sometimes we had to build back in Rolling Fork. The police department was demolished. The fire department was demolished. So we've been bringing firefighters in to help cover shift before we can get those. So we're trying to get the facilities what the citizen wants uh, for that local community, what they had as support. We're trying to make sure we have that up first. And then uh, also to make sure those lots are clean of debris where we can install some units there for them. So it's, it's been a heavy lift. Uh, the, the locals have done a great job, those local emergency managers as well as uh, my team. I've got an individual assistance and housing team that actually works this every day. We have about three meetings a week. We look at the short term, the mid, and now we're looking at the long term. Well, what do we look like at 18 months from now? How are we going to rebuild like a coast here, uh, the Mississippi coast after Katrina? That's really what those towns are, Amory on one side and Rolling Fork in the other, as you explained. You know, b both sides, how, how are we going to build those back and those communities, how do they want them to look? Stephen McCraney is executive director of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.